there's no getting away from the resistance or stress. Life is not going to stop giving you challenge. It's just not going to happen. So we either spend all of our energy blocking it, ignoring it, numbing it, distracting, glossing it over, uh, compartmentalizing, or we build these muscles in ourselves to be able to be with discomfort or challenge or change. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. PDW fans, we are excited to share our amazing guest with you today, J.C. Gossett Callen. To ensure you don't miss her or any of our top voices in the future of work, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and also our YouTube channel. J.C. Gossett Callen is a world-renowned fitness, dance, mindfulness, and wellness innovator. She currently serves as VP of Training and Development and a founding teacher at the class where she has been working and leading mostly women and some men like myself through powerful physical and emotional experiences, helping them on their journey of self-exploration for nearly 10 years. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what the class is, it's a lot more than just a workout. And it's been written up in Forbes, the New York Times, W Magazine, Self, and Get Gloss, and is a go-to practice for celebrities like Naomi Watts, Jennifer Aniston, and Giselle. I'm not going to say her last name, but she used to be married to a rather famous quarterback, Go Pats. Now, people attend the class in person in New York and L.A., and you guys started live streaming back in 2019 before the pandemic and achieved hockey stick-like growth and a cult-like following during the pandemic, which became foundational to people's self-care and well-being. And since then, and very topical to us, the TDW, you guys have begun to focus on how your teachings apply to people's mental health and self-care in the workplace, launching the class at work. Now, I had the privilege of meeting JC at one of my favorite conferences, the Nantucket Project, back in 2017, where she was brought in to help people move, open up, experience joy, and also lean into vulnerability. She has a magnetic energy and unique ability to make people feel seen and cared for. And I was back at the Nantucket Project earlier this month, and we reconnected, discussed her work, and how the class continues to help so many who are struggling in many areas of their life, but especially at work and in their careers. And I said, JC, you got to join us at TDW. And so here we are. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you. All right. Let's dive in. I know Alex has done the class. He's done it at the Nantucket Project and at the New York studio. And fitness is a big part of my journey. And I can remember being young and doing fitness because I wanted to be a better athlete or when I was older and trying to uh, probably for vain reasons, look better. And then now I'm in a place in my life where I do fitness for the way I feel mentally. I just feel better. I also run Spartan races to kind of push boundaries in my life. So it sounds like the class is sort of along those lines of it's a different kind of self-care. And I read this about the class, quote, an expansive heart clearing and body strengthening release. And Fast Company called it a workout for your feelings, end quote. 
So in your words, the, the class has become this cult following. It's this huge thing. What is the class? It's, it's so nice hearing other ways that people describe it because it is such a personal thing. And I think part of that is the space that we create for people to move and feel and access things that are so personal that it becomes something different for everybody. So the class in itself blends cardio, strength training, guided meditation into a music-driven workout that brings you into the present moment. Alex has experienced this. <laughs> when we're in the class, once we put the body in motion, we have this ability to access energy, life experiences, our thoughts, all the things that have been stored into the body and then we be able to work that through. So there's a real vulnerable heart space that we access through the guided meditation of the facilitator and the teacher that takes you in to potentially, if you're willing, the most personal spaces with yourself. So the practice in itself, it's a, it's a map-based, it's music-driven. All you need is just your body. And what's unique about what we do is we, re- we repeat one move per song to create sensation in the body. And then once we create that sensation in the body, we begin to observe our thoughts. We use a lot of sound and vocal release. You hear things like, huh, and huh, and sometimes, <laughs> as a way to release energy and breath to bring awareness to our feelings and sensations. And what ends up happening, the results are a stronger body, a calmer mind, and a, a greater sense of presence. So similar to what you shared, Nate, it's like, you know, I think for how we came to this place and also in my own personal experience, fitness and exercise was what you did to look good. It was how you had the number on the scale or you fit into whatever size the thing was. It was, that's what you did. At that point for me, it wasn't, my, it wasn't at all tending to my energetic, emotional and mental state or some aspect of spiritual practice. And over time, I think the research and the science has gotten much better of, or, or let's just say there's been more time spent on actually what is happening in the movement practice for your mind, your, your heart, and your spirit. That's undeniable. I wanted to talk about something that we feel is really important, which is this idea of building resilience and breaking through limiting beliefs, because we're living in this period of constant change and resilience and, and breaking through limiting beliefs of know, who we are, who we need to be, what our skills are. There's a lot of reimagining that needs to go on in this moment. I've noticed that in my experience in the class, you know, the movements themselves are not that hard, right? What's great about it, especially during the pandemic, is all you need is a mat, which is fantastic, right? It's your mat, your body. And there is this call to get to that point, though, where you feel that muscle fatigue, you feel that moment of your body doesn't want to do anymore. And you're asking people to notice what's happening. You're asking people to kind of step into that resistance and that unknown and, and try to push past it, but also kind of understand what's that internal dialogue. I'd love to hear more like, how did this become a core part of the program? And what is the value that you see or holistically the class sees in pushing past your comfort zone? It was really important for us always to let the class be a practice about practicing life because you could just go to the gym, right? You could just go for a run. You can go and do a, move your body in any way that you wanted to. So what could we offer that was different and special and use working out 
to do that would translate to a benefit that you saw out in your life. Because if you study resilience or are interested in change and evolution and growth, there's no way we can do any of that without meeting some place that we're either stuck, attached to, in a limiting belief around, or could use a rewiring and reprogramming around. So if you want to just change your body, there's nothing wrong with that. That's cool, right? But then it's like, well, what do you do if you want a little bit more? What if you're someone who's interested in self-growth and self-reflection uh, and you're looking to improve your relationships with yourself, maybe your relationships in your life, how you show up at work, where do you practice that? And I don't know about you, but if I don't have somewhere to practice any of these things, you're just kind of doing it in the moment, right? You're kind of like, I hope this works out and I guess this is how I do this. So for us, we were able to say, let's take this, this movement modality and let it be a laboratory where we can practice the things that we're working on in life and strengthen ourselves in a push-up at the same time. So as we're strengthening the muscle, we're identifying thoughts and you mentioned limiting belief and there's a lot of information out there about the way our brains are wired and a lot of that is historically there to protect us from getting eaten by lions and things like that. And that wiring hasn't changed. (laughs) It's just that we're no longer fighting lions, we're reading emails. So that wiring is there to protect you in some capacity. That's not a bad thing. But if it becomes the thing that prevents you from going a little bit further into exploring those mechanisms that are like, nope, it doesn't feel good. It's a little uncomfortable. Um, I'm experiencing some some kind of discomfort. We're never going to move into that greater space of possibility and, and greater capacity, which is what we really are here to do. For me, that's what I believe, right? So we allow the, the movement modality to be a space where you could work on yourself as well as get all of the, the physical benefits. So when we're in class and it's just natural, if you're, if you're in a burpee for however long, or if you're in a push-up for however long, however plank you're, you're, however long that plank is, there might eventually become a narrative about what you think you can do. And what you think you can do ultimately is going to be what you believe about yourself, how you put yourself out there, and then the choices that you make. So if we can get curious in that space of what we believe, how we came to that belief, ask the question of if that's real and if that's true, do I want to hang on to it? And is there a place potentially to reframe that? And in a safe way, it's not about punishing your body in any way or pushing yourself into a place that's dangerous, but play with that space of what you think is possible via the body and the breath in movement. It is amazing to see what can come from that. That's in many ways, um, deep, what I would call deep work, and in many ways, identity work. The story that you tell yourself, is this what you believe? Are you going to hang on to that? Or where did that belief come from? There's so many questions you can ask. And then all of a sudden, the person's like, I came to work out, but I'm unpacking some deep stuff here. And it, and it just, it's the, the parts that pop up. It's not like people walk into the class with some sense about what's going to come out. It's in the moment of the stress or the workout, the body doing its work that things just start to pop into the, into the mind, right? Totally. You might, you might come into class if you've done before and know very specifically what you're carrying on your heart that day. And also you may come in that day being like, I'm just here to do the workout and, and then open up something that you had no further aware, no prior awareness to. That's what's so cool about it. You could come in very specific. 
here's what I'm working on in myself, in my life right now, that's very current. And also I'm here in the space of curiosity and exploration. And as you all know, and there's, there's, there's many different philosophies that have spoken about this and, and spiritual beliefs or meditation that there's no getting away from the resistance or stress. Like life is not going to stop giving you challenge. It's just not going to happen. So we either spend all of our energy blocking it, ignoring it, numbing it, distracting, glossing it over, uh, compartmentalizing, or we build these muscles in ourselves to be able to be with discomfort or challenge or change. We think a lot about this notion of expanding our labels and that because we are, in the United States, this notion of I am what I do is so prevalent, right? And so when we think about a workplace that is a VUCA environment, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, where so many things are unknowable, how is AI going to affect my job? Well, this month it's going to do this. A year from now, we don't know. How is work from home or hybrid work going to evolve? How is mental health or belonging or the DEI program that I need to feel seen, known, and valued in my work going to manifest my organization? All these things are coming up. And so expanding our labels to have a more holistic sense of who we are and who we want to become gives us that same permission to play in our careers. And you guys are seeding that every time people walk into the container of the class. Mm -hmm. Just giving it voice. I mean, think about, and most of us don't get to give voice to these things. And then we all have some strange version of stuffing it down and it manifests in all kinds of weird ways in our body, including disease. But this, just giving this thing, this feeling, this thought, this emotion, this belief, this sense of way to come out. Powerful. It's beautiful. It's not that different from coaching or therapy or counseling or where it, it's just another form, in my view, of giving something away to surface. But it's more fun. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot more fun. <laughs> a lot more fun. Yeah. At times, right? At times. Maybe there's moments where it's not so fun and maybe there's moments where it is fun. But, but it, it's more than ever, and I'm sure every day we get that confirmation is it's needed. We are aware of the mental health crisis. We are aware of burnout. We are aware of loneliness, feeling isolated, lack of community, lack of purpose. And if there isn't something that we can do to touch on those spaces or give voice to them, like then, then what, mm, you know, not good then, things. then what, right? So the emotional body is, is meant to be in flow and kind of like what you touched on, Nate, where so much of how we process stress or handle stress or uh, approach our feelings is hardwired and it's also learned behavior. And I don't know about you, but when I was in school, no one taught me about my feelings and emotion. No one taught me how to self-regulate. No one taught me how to self-soothe in a healthy way or the range and spectrums of emotions. It was very clear that some were acceptable and some weren't. Happiness and joy was acceptable. Pain, suffering, sadness was like grief. Go do that over there. Yeah. There's no space for yes. that. So 
when you cut those parts off of yourself, as y'all know, you cut off everything, right? So how do you how do you open up those different lanes of energy or emotions or meridians, whatever language you speak when it comes to energy, so that there is this holistic coming back to harmony with all of the parts of ourselves because we've been really put into those boxes of it's just the body or it's just the mind or it's just this where where we're met with a world that tells us we have to be kind of separated rather than integrated or fit into different ways we identify rather than embrace all of us and that has to start with us like if we can't embrace all of ourselves all of ourselves then then how are we doing that for others in any capacity that's fascinating uh, to think about it that way alex and i talk a lot about that at work there's been long been a narrative of leave that at home personal and business don't mix. We're not a, a psychotherapist. Don't bring that here. You know, all these kind of weird commentary things that sort of seed an environment of your whole self isn't welcome here. And, and now we're in this new narrative of, hang on, if you're going to get the best out of any human being, there has to be a place for the whole self. And there has to be a place to talk to these. But I like how you said, actually, that narrative has been there all the while. It was there in school, right? even in some people's homes. You couldn't, you couldn't have those kind of conversations, that sort of thing. So I think we're only now waking up to if we're going to be the best versions of ourselves, if we're going to be the best in our careers, if we're going to be the best human beings we could be, then we have to do work like what you do at the class. Yeah, productivity, creativity, uh, work culture. I mean, all of those things are go- going to touch on how you feel. And... I mean, in my world, I spend way more time with my colleagues than I do with my husband. Mm. <laughs> so that's, uh, I don't know how you don't bring yourself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just the nature of the amount of those work relationships or where you work. It, it's a massive part of your life. Massive part of your life. You said um, in, when you were doing the podcast, you had three words to define conversations that set the stage for conversations. Curiosity vulnerability, and authenticity, which are all very, very powerful words for a deep conversation in the same way that you're doing the deep work as you move. Now, we feel these are human superpowers. We genuinely believe in the era that we've entered into where technology is doing more and more and we're more digital than ever, and certainly the AI era, that there's human superpowers that will distinguish us in our ability to connect with other human beings and, and kind of light that fire that we have between other human beings. So. How do you harness these powers, those three words with yourself in, in your clients, your participants? We, we talk a lot about these words in our teaching community and a part of our training. And we're in constant conversation with our teaching team. And sometimes that's advanced training. Sometimes it's just a call that we all do check-ins, check-ins in. And you know, it's really important for us that when we're co-creating that space as facilitators of the method of the class, that that is the space that we are co-creating, one of curiosity, vulnerability, and authenticity. Curiosity allows us to stay in this place of know that you don't know. I don't know anything. And if I can, I mean, I know some things, but if I come into the space of like, I know it all, I know everything, I've reached the top of the mountain, and now I'm here to just tell you all how to do it, I'm going to block myself off from connection. And you can isolate a lot of people if you're needing to be right, which I think is something that uh, we come up against in conversation with other humans, this idea that we either need to or we need to know because not knowing is scary. So if we can come into the space of curiosity of, I may not know 
And also I'm willing to know and rather than be right or to um, uh, talk at, it allows you to stay open and stay curious with vulnerability that that openness for us, especially as a facilitator, is if, I, if I'm not willing to go there, how can I expect anybody to go there? If I'm not willing to be vulnerable with, with myself or my own process to share my vulnerability of what I'm going through, then that pocket is definitely not going to open for anybody else in the room. And if my teaching is coming from a place that's not authentic and maybe it's performative or maybe I'm trying to be someone, someone else, that is a palpable feeling that also inhibits any of the students from finding that authenticity in yourself. So when we think about being a, uh, a leader, whether that's in a corporate setting or for us in a co-facilitation center space, those pillars help us cultivate a space that's open, warm, and inclusive. I love that answer so much. <laughs> it's challenging to stay curious, right? It's like we're, I think we're rewarded for how much we know. And we're not necessarily celebrated for being curious. A hundred percent. It's uh, that's all the way through our lives. It's in school. It's in our uh, relationships. There aren't a lot of people. I remember being young, and, and people would say to me, "Nate, you you have deep conversations. Why do you do that?" It was like weird to them. And some people go through a lot early in life, like I did, and <laughs> you learn these tools earlier because you had to. But I think there are a lot of people that are kind of like, I, I, I don't, I'm not ready to be vulnerable. I'm not ready to be authentic with anyone. I'm going to put up the mask. I call it the corporate mask. And, and you sort of put on this look that you're a certain way and people are supposed to experience you that way. Don't look behind the curtain. Just stay up here, you know? So I think it's beautiful that you're modeling that same thing of authenticity and vulnerability as the way to connect, as the way to find your deepest self, as the way to work through your challenges. It's beautiful. Thank you. You guys launched the class at work. Can you tell us more about what this is and how it's being received? Yes. So the class itself in its original format is a mat-based music-driven workout. And what we found was there were parts of the method that were really resonating for people in a way that they wanted to bring it into the other parts of their life that didn't require them to be on a mat, maybe in workout clothing or in a studio or uh, somewhere where they had to have privacy. And the challenge for us was like, how can we bring some of the methodology to people wherever they are without necessarily needing to be in workout clothes or on a mat or inside a studio or potentially in front of a screen on the digital platform? So we created a couple of different ways to do that. One through an audio series. So you could take us, the facilitators of the class, the teachers of the class in your ears and go for a walk while we're talking you through a process of the method. You could do a breathing meditation with us. You could do an actual class that incorporated the cardio and the strength training without needing to look at us. And the class at work was a series that we created that was all, uh, you know, no sweat, low impact sequences that you could do preparing either for a difficult conversation at work, needing to de-stress or open up a space of creativity. So that this idea that like my workout 
is needs to be somewhere that is separate from everything else in my life. And I can only do it in this very rigid way. So when we started kind of coming back into this, and you mentioned this, this hybrid way of working for some of us, it was, we were at home and we were at the office Mm -hmm. and more than ever, people were really struggling, maybe not more than ever, but we found that there was the struggle of boundaries and separation. How I experienced that was when I was working from home, everything was at home. So I was on all my meetings at home. I was in my relationship at home. The same place where I was doing my emails was where the dinner was happening. The same space where all of my challenging conversations that were happening at home was also where I was expected to kind of like show up and be productive. And all of those uh, lines kind of got really blurred and it wasn't possible to go and leave my house and go to the studio or go to the office. So the class at work was this way that you could have a moment for yourself that really was for you to tune in to not just the health of your body, but how you were doing physically, emotionally, mentally, have a breath and a, a moment to separate from all the things that were happening so you could come back to yourself and then re-engage. We didn't want the screen or the mat or having to go to the studio to be the barrier from people having the, the mental health break maybe that they needed, the moment of relief that they needed. How did you guys roll this out? How has it been received? How has it evolved? It's really fascinating to me that you, that you guys have done this. We started the digital platform pre-pandemic. And then once the pandemic happened, we obviously like, you know, got shut down in all the ways the rest of the world did and shifted our focus really to developing that kind of content. And the class at work lives on our digital studios. We have two physical studios, one in New York, one in LA. We stream in over 70 countries digitally at theclass.com. And once you become a member, you have access to all of the content we've ever created. And that goes from the class to yoga, to meditation, to breath work, to the class at work, to we did, we did something called the fertility series. Uh, there's five-minute classes, 10-minute classes, and you can tailor the program to meet your needs and what works for you. Having the moment to pause is the beginning of the change. You mentioned it, both of you, in how you're working on yourself and also what you notice when you are either using your physical body for a workout or identifying limiting beliefs. If that moment of pause cannot be accessed, it's kind of really very challenging to create any kind of change or long-lasting change. So when you're at work in one place potentially all day, whether that's at home or whether that's in the office, the day can become scheduled and there's meeting after meeting and you live by your calendar. Mm-hmm. If it's not on your calendar, it's not happening. Yes. And that <laughs> perpetual <laughs> way of existing without any pause or break is unsustainable in my yes. my personal my personal thought or experience. So if we can have a moment to separate from the, the email and the computer, stand up, shake our body, maybe walk outside, maybe go to the restroom, maybe um, shut the door, jump up and down for five minutes, get the energy going. Not only are we going to feel like we have more energy, we're oxygenating the system. We're letting the brain, the executive function of the brain needs it. There's no way it can just go all day long and keep going and going and going. There has to be some kind of pause. So with the class at work or any of these audio classes that we created is like, how can we just give people 
one minute, two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes to breathe, to disrupt the, the automatic way we work. Without the disruption, without the interruption, there's, there's, just, there's, there's just no change. There's no moment to create a different experience. Has anybody gone off the script and been letting out like a ha, like a really loud noise in the workplace, like in the office? For sure. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I mean, for us in our, in, you know, in our world, all of our meetings start with ha. <laughs> Sometimes you go on mute and you're like, ah, or you, you know, you jump up and down for five minutes or we shake our body after we've been sitting for an hour. Can you imagine a world of work where the board meeting actually occurred with some chanting or some breath work or some release yes. at the beginning. I yes. mean, that would be so healthy and cathartic, but you know, we are, we're not there yet, but I, I hope we will get there. I mean, the fact that you guys have normalized this within, you know, your executive leadership team, that is so fantastic. Mm-hmm. Taking this a step further with the teacher training, we talked a little bit about that. And you have a unique word in your teacher training, and that is that people are trauma-informed, not necessarily trauma-trained. And and, um, trauma is this really important part of the human experience, but not a lot of people want to talk about it. And certainly it's not welcome at work. (laughs) But this is not, trauma-informed is not therapy per se, right? It's uh, the ability to hold space. You've said many times, like create a space hold the space, give people some tools to let some things start to surface. And these are difficult conversations and emotions and that sort of thing. Well, let's take that idea into the workplace because you already are with your tools. And a question I have for you is largely the workplace has not wanted to go down this road. In fact, they outsource those kind of conversations to external professionals. But do you think, or do you see a world where leaders, HR folks, you know, um, could be trauma-informed and start to hold space? Or is that just ridiculous? How do you see that? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't think of any situation where this would not be helpful. I mean, even just going through that part of our training, we do it every year. We have a trauma-informed specialist that comes in that talks about holding space and creating safer spaces and looks at language in a way that allows us to create warm, inclusive, welcoming environments. And that is a muscle that all of us have to exercise and learn and become aware of. And I've seen that translate not just to my leadership as a class teacher, but also in my leadership and my role at the class with the teachers and the corporate team and in every single one of my relationships. I mean, it's, 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 it's being with people. It's, it's communication, it's relational, it's um, the words we use, the, the energy we emit, the openness or vulnerability of these pillars that we spoke about that uh, we're able to create in ourselves for then people to access that within themselves. So, and thank you for making that dis- distinction because we're not therapists. Like we don't go through a psychological or a psychiatric training or anything like that. We're we're not uh, trauma specialists. The human experience innately engages with the word trauma, and there's different definitions of this. And one that is helpful for me is anything that happens too fast, too soon, too much, too little. A lot of the like twos 
that then is too something for the brain to process that it then gets stored in the body. But that specifically the trauma is not necessarily what happened. It's the response system to the thing that happened. That response system or the way that we react is so unique for every person based off of their lived experience. So how I experience something is not going to be the way you experience it based off of our different lived experience. One's not better or worse. But the more we can become aware of that, how I see that in the workplace and also in all of our relationships, whether that's your family or your friends or your marriages or any kind of partnership, is removing this idea that we all respond to things the same way, this blanket Mm. statement. Here's what we're doing. Now you're all going to feel this way about it. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work that way. So there has to be room for everyone's unique lived experience to be welcomed and felt. And there has to be space for that. And that has to feel okay to explore so that we can get into these healing spaces, these healing conversations. So this concept of psychological safety you know, is about that very thing. But what's interesting about it is largely an intellectual thing right now. And we're just starting to get the behaviors, the tools, the language, the modeling to really start to embody this idea of psychological safety. And I want to draw one distinction that I think you brought up so well is often when you hear the word trauma, people think of it as something that happened outside. Trauma happens in the workplace every day. It is a real thing that's happening out there. And if you've gone through some big moments in the workplace, you know what we're talking about. People leave some of those experiences with serious trauma. But there isn't a way right now to process that because no one wants to open that door quite yet. But I do think we're really, really close. So let's keep going. Yeah, we, ha- we have to keep going. We really do. And, and these conversations like you know, that you're having every day on this podcast and that we're having is helping normalize the lived experience, which is removing this idea of like to be successful and to perform in the world, you feel nothing. (laughs) You are a robot. (laughs) You have no emotions. Nothing affects you. I mean, think about all of the ways that we've celebrated people like that. They're the toughest person. Nothing rattles them. Yep. And the more we say those things, they get so much done. They're working 90 hours a week. Good for so-and-so. That just perpetuates this like robotic, non-human way of living that is just is not unsustainable. Unsustainable, not healthy, and just breeds more of that separation. I wanted to share that that notion of denying someone's experience is such an important call out. And I think for all of us, when somebody is complaining to us or about us or about something that maybe we've done or being accused of, it is so easy to go to that defensive place and deny someone's experience. And even if you feel defensive, the best thing you can do, and I've learned this the hard way, I want to say like, this is not something that I've always been great at. I, I, I'm, my wife and I, sometimes when we've had conflict in the past couple of years, she said to me, point blank, you are denying my experience if I am being defensive in a certain way and use those words. And I'm really glad that she does because it snaps me out of that part of me that wants to make my case for why I see it the way I see it and just pause and say, oh, right, I need to fully take in the holistic, emotional, 
uh, occurrence that's happening for you, the, that, that, that the way that you're seeing it, the way that you're understanding it, until I demonstrate to you that you are being seen, anything that I may want to surface is not going to have any impact anyway. So <laughs> there's, the, there's, the, there's the selfish motivation of if you don't see someone and listen to them, you're not going to get a chance to make your point. And then there's the selfless motivation of, I want to be fully open to understanding where you're at, because if I don't do that, then I'm not honoring you as another human being on this planet. <laughs> so I want to bring up something that I acknowledge may be a little difficult for a man to navigate or understand. And you work with a lot of women. And it's this sense of pressure women feel to have it all. beauty brains, driving career, great relationship, become mothers and do it all perfectly and sometimes without complaining. And there's a great clip by the comedian uh, Michelle Wolf that I shared with you before. We'll also put it in the show notes. It's, it's, it's amusing, but it's also not funny at all because of the commentary that she's bringing about what's happening for women. And you've experienced you know, your own dance with perfection and shame and modeling as a young girl and competitive dance, and I would guess have held space for a lot of women who struggle with this sense of perfection or trying to have it all. What can you share about your own experience and what advice do you have for women and for men who want to try to hold space or understand this better? The, the amount of pressure that we put on ourselves and that we feel from the outside world is, is a lot. And the more we present perfectionism, the more we contribute to that level of toxicity. And whether that's for women or men or however people identify in any way. So part of it is like, we have to just stop that narrative. We have to stop presenting ourselves as perfection. uh, That just breeds that level of toxicity. For me as a female identifying person, I was, I would say, interested in this idea of having it all for sure. Like, okay, well, can I be have a career and be uh, this person teaching and be in a relationship and potentially become a mother? And my journey with fertility was it didn't materialize with a, a baby at this current moment in time. So having it all didn't apply for me. Like I thought that was a real ne- that was truth. Like that was what I was told, and that was information that I think as a when I was young, it wasn't the storybooks I was reading were, was not about having it all. It was very much having it all in the sense that like as a woman, you are going to have a family and that family is not hard to have. <laughs> it just happens. Women have babies. They create families. And there was that was just what was presented to me. So there was never a moment where I thought that that wouldn't apply to me until it did until I entered the space of unexplained infertility and came up against my own belief system of what I thought it meant to be a woman, what the world wanted to see me do and how the world wanted to see me perform. And then not being able to do that, I felt like a failure. And when all of that dismantles, it's not fun. It's not pretty, right? But it does give you the opportunity to reimagine what's possible for yourself in a way that was not presented to you from an outside societal way. I don't know any woman that has it all in the sense that, of course, there's tons of people that I work with and are dear friends of mine that are mothers and 
run businesses and our CEOs and do are doing the thing. Is it easy? No. <laughs> Is every aspect of their life 100%? No. It's impo- I mean, I, for me, I don't think that that's possible to have so many aspects of your life where you are 100% of everything. There's not enough of us. There's not enough energy to be working X amount of hours, giving 100%, and then at home, giving 100%, and then here, giving 100%. There isn't 100% of energy everywhere and everything. There's choice. There's a constant every day. How do I rebalance? It's so much over here. I'm sure you feel this way. It's like yes. The moments where you're like, wow, I've been a lot of energy over here and that's neglecting this. Now I have to recenter. Now I'm over here. And now I need to bring my energy over here. So I think that unrealistic expectation of sure, you can just absolutely have everything. It's going to be easy. Who's doing any of that without help? No one's talking about that. How are you getting support? No one's talking about that. So, so who's running this PR campaign for perfection? <laughs> Where does this come from? How do we dress it up with some reality clothing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it starts so early. It start for me. It started so early. Of your job is to make other people feel good. You know, your be this way so that other people feel like this. Start so early. And was that in school? Was that at home? Was that in the things you were reading? I feel like that was everywhere. Yeah, I feel like that was everywhere. At, in school, it, it was behave this way so that you get a good grade or that the teacher likes you or that your scorecard is X, right? You don't rock the boat. As a female identifying person, be this way so that other women like you and and men like you so that they don't not like you in being a dancer be this way so that you get the good score as a young model be this way so that you get more jobs and you get more money <laughs> there's it think it's like presented from every angle and then as i yeah i got older like okay well if you're not a mother and you don't have children then where do you fit in society who are you mm really confronting for people to talk about that to not have this shared narrative of like kids and family and it's not what happens when that's not how your life pans out when you describe it that way i'm hearing you say how am i even supposed to know who i am if in every context i walk into someone says well now you need to be like this over here and then you go into this context now you need to be like this over here and there's this broader social construct of, well, a woman's supposed to be like this and she's supposed to have children and all these things. And then at some point, you and every woman, and certainly I felt this way as a man, is at some point in life, we all get to this place where we go, hang on a second. What do I want? What matters most? What do I stand for? Does any of that stuff matter? And I think that coming back to your PR campaign comment, Alex, is this idea of, what about the PR campaign of what do I want? What do I stand for? How do I want to show up in the world? What are my gifts and how do I want to give them in this world? This, this flip of what matters most to me versus be like this, be like this, be like this. And oh, by the way, we're going to judge and discard you on any given day as part of this completely transactional process. It's kind of fascinating to hear you say it in that way and go, oh my gosh, you're just trying to dig out of this hole. You've been 
put into for your whole life. And no wonder it's so confusing. No wonder we don't know what we want or who we are because those environments were not uh, prevalent, you know? So when we have these moments of like, wow, I recognize that I've been living externally or in this performative way or so concerned of people pleasing or codependency or whatever, fill in the blank. There is a, a radical, uh, who am I without any of that? Yes. And that can be really scary. That could prevent anybody from wanting to do any of this work. You're like jumping off a cliff. <laughs> we talk a lot about the idea of the second mountain, that the first mountain that you climb, this is a, it's a book by David Brooks, but it's a prevalent notion. The first mountain that you climb is the mountain that society tells you that you're supposed to climb. And I think the hardest thing for a lot of folks is people who actually do achieve the summit of that mountain they thought they were supposed to climb. They get up there and they get all the things that they were told they were supposed to want and realize they're unhappy. Mm -hmm. And then they wind up in the valley for a little while and figure out what is that second mountain that really is my authentic self. What does my authentic self look like? What does my authentic life look like? And they have to build it later in life when they have more responsibility and less energy to do so than we do when we're young. And that's the sad thing is that we're chasing this first mountain when we have the least amount of responsibility and the greatest amount of energy. We're chasing the wrong things. Uh, you posted a quote from Toni Morrison, and I, I have a hunch you relate it deeply to your work, but I'm going to wait and see what you say. The quote is, I tell my students when you get these jobs that you have been so brilliantly trained for, just remember that your real job is that if you are free, you need to free somebody else. If you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. Mm -hmm. I see you all over that quote. What does it mean to you? The, the role that we have as teachers, and, and I'll just even say humans. I'm going to go that far. There's a conditioning to control others. There's a conditioning to other others. There's a conditioning to get power and wield it over. And there is an immense responsibility and need to not do that and to use whatever you can to cultivate your own freedom and empower everyone else around you. That is very different than my early experiences. That's different than my early jobs. It's different than any... Uh, than a lot of my relationships I had with people in power. It was to control and to own and to just take whatever you can for your own self, like a very uh, um, independent, self-driven, self-narrative that's just all about me. If we are here in relationship with each other, I feel very strongly that that comes with a responsibility to do our own work and to create that opportunity for other people. That's real leadership for me. JC, we are going to invite you into a speed round and ask you to answer in a minute or less. And Nate is going to kick us off. Oh, this is fun. You said, we are constantly being informed by the energy around us and the energy in us. You give your energy all day to others to create that space for others. But at some point, you must need to recharge your energy. How do you do that? Quiet, taking baths, taking showers, hanging out with my dog, Chili, going for walks with Chili and my husband, space to just like daydream 
no agenda, no external stimulation, no using my brain, just like just white, white space. Not long ago, you said, I am working on breaking the habit of starting the day with negative thoughts of worry, fear, or scarcity. How's that going? So we learn in our trauma-informed training that there is something called the window of capacity. And every day, that window of capacity is, is different. Some days, the window of capacity is like, I have space for it all. I am like in a positive mindset and I can meet my negative thoughts. And then some days you feel your window of capacity is like, there is really not space. Like I'm in survival mode. I just need to really get through this in the best way that I can. So I give myself the grace of that window of capacity. I see that with my dog all of the time. Some days her window of capacity is she can do all of the things. She wants to be out playing with the dog. She wants to go to the park. And then some days her window of capacity is like, mom, I just kind of want to stay in the house and be close to you. And I honor that in myself. I give myself the grace and permission to let that window of capacity fluctuate as I see it in her. Last speed round question. The work that you're doing in the corporate space with professionals is so important. What is on the docket for 2024? Is there any new stuff coming out? We are. So we have our our own app. We have the class.com where everything you can join our digital studio and we're building our big focus for 2024 is community. So we have a community page that we just launched uh, very, very recently, and we're making this our global lobby. So as I mentioned, we stream in over 70 countries. So this is a place where we can have deep conversations. We can have, hey, what was that song? And Thursday's class, uh, how do I do the burpee? All the way to, I'm navigating this really difficult experience in my life right now. And I would love to know how to apply that in the class. And also, is there anyone else here going through something like this that I can chat with? So that's our, our, fo- our focus is community. JC, thank you for being you for the work that you have brought into the world, for the work that you have extended into the workplace for professionals. And and thank you for sharing your deeply personal journey with us. We covered a lot of ground here and we're grateful that you felt comfortable to share some of the challenges that you face and how you've translated that into helping others. Where can people find you, JC? What are the best spots? Yes, yeah, so you can go to theclass.com and you'll have access to everything that we do digitally, in-person, retreats, events. And if you want to reach out to me on Instagram, I'm just JC Gossett. I make it a point to answer all my messages. So you're welcome to reach out to me there as well. Awesome. And I will put a plug in for the class. It really is an amazing experience and everybody should give it at least one try. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.